So most of you are younger than me, so I'll have to give you a little tutorial. A lot of you aren't football players. Whenever you have to do your illustration or, or announcement that way, you know you're already in trouble, but I'm going I'm to give him my, my best shot. Uh, Vince Lombardi was one of the best football coaches that ever coached in the NFL. He actually went straight from a high school coaching job into the NFL and has one of the highest winning percentages for coaches that have over 100 games in history. And in 1960, he had just come to the Green Bay Packers, and the Packers played the Philadelphia Eagles in the NFL championship game. This was before the Super Bowl, so this was the whole thing. This was the whole championship. And Green Bay managed to squander an early lead against the Eagles, and the Eagles defeated them in the NFL championship game. Go Eagles. <laughs> for those of you who don't know, I lived in Philadelphia for 20 years, and Eagles fans are obnoxious. Um, and I, I count myself among them. Um, anyway, so in 1961, training camp is about this time of year. You know, training camp has opened. And they're in Green Bay, and Vince Lombardi stands up in front of 38 professional football players who have been playing football for, I don't know, since they were eight years old or whatever. And he takes a ball, and he holds it up in his hands, and his, his leading remarks are, gentlemen, this is a football. And Lombardi was onto something there. What he was really onto, what he was going to drive home to the Packers was, we lost last year, uh, not for la- lack of fancy plays or innovative ideas or new strategies. We lost because we didn't do the basics. We didn't do fundamentals. And apparently they heard his message because they went on to win uh, five NFL championships and two Super Bowls in a row in Green Bay. And that's why Vince Lombardi such a great coach. I believe that Paul is giving us the same kind of talk in 1 Corinthians 16. This is a messy church, and Paul has ranged far and wide with these people. He was with them, and then they sent letters to him, and people came and gave him reports. It was all a big mess, and he's covered all kinds of messy things, both failures to love as well as failures, uh, in one case, in doctrine. And now he's coming to, okay, what are you going to do step by step, moment by moment to walk this out? I've given you all these instructions. Now you need to walk it out. And last week, we called the the message Habits of a Messy Church. And I was just a little bashful to say Habits of a Messy Church too. So I came up with something different. Let's say stick to the basics, all right? So Vince Lombardi says stick to the basics. Paul says stick to the basics. So let's do that. And we want to do that by looking, and this will be our last text in 1 Corinthians uh, Corinthians 16, uh, beginning in verse 12. It's on page 11 in your worship guide and up on the screen. Now, this is in the middle of a bunch of exhortations, so we just have to plunge into it. Now, concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, 
and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeus because they have made up for your absence, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone, who ha- if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. Sticking to the basics uh, today, uh, we're going to look at three things from this text. One is that you follow Christ and not personalities, but just remember, follow Christ. That you stand firm in love and that you follow those who serve. Follow Christ, stand firm in love and follow those who serve. Let's look then first at how this text gives us this conclusion that he's saying to follow Christ. Verse 12 begins by saying, now concerning. And for those of you who've been with us all this time, you know that that's a flag that indicates that they had written to him with a question. So apparently the Corinthians had written to Paul, and apparently what they said is, hey, could Apollos come here and preach? Now, you've got to put this in the context of the letter to really appreciate that request. You will remember, first of all, that Apollos is a powerful orator all through the New Testament. He's a powerful orator. He comes and and he speaks, and actually uh, Aquila and Prissa, who are here, get him straightened out with clarity about the gospel. And then he goes on to be recognized by the church as a powerful preacher. So at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, what you find is that there are divisions within the church. There was probably a group of people that were leading a rebellion there against Paul. And you find that these factions, uh, some said, I follow Paul. Some said, I follow Apollos. Hmm. Others said, I follow Cephas or Peter. And then finally others, I follow Christ. And so When you think about this, Paul has labored with them over his relationship with them all through the book. Um, He says in chapter 9 that he has to establish with them his apostolic authority. Paul is an apostle just like the original 12. Jesus met with him, struck him down, struck him blind, saved him, and commissioned him to go to the Gentiles. And so there's nothing wrong with his office and for him teaching them and saying to them, Am I not an apostle? This is, I'm quoting chapter 9. Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? And are you not the result of my own preaching? If, if I'm an apostle to others, surely I ought to be an apostle to you. And you, you come then to this request that comes from them, and you think, wow, what a slap in the face. We've just heard that they're all divisions, some of them behind Apollos. And hey, Paul, we want you to send Apollos over to preach to us. Now, Paul, like Apollos, was committed to Christ. There's no division between Paul and Apollos. And Paul had already said in chapters 3 and 4, some people plant, 
and some people water, and he mixes his metaphor there. Some people lay a foundation, and some people build on it, and everybody should be careful how they tend God's garden or God's building. And he's talking about himself and Apollos. So he and Apollos have, have no problems. But he wants them to see that Christ is the builder of the church. That their allegiance, first of all, has to be the, to the trying God through faith in Christ. And he would reiterate here, was, was, Christ, was Paul crucified for you? you know, was Apollos crucified for you? And so when you, when you see this, what Paul says is, I strongly urged Apollos to go to you. Do, you. do you get what that reflects? Paul's no narcissist who has to be recognized in Corinth. Paul's no control freak. Paul no, is no authoritarian leader who has to, to have control over everything. He's an apostle who wants the church to know and follow Jesus Christ. And if that comes through Apollos, that's fine. Or if that comes through, through him, that's fine. Now, the point I'm making, I think, is well played out in church history. Probably the best example I know of came from the First Great Awakening. So around 1738, 6, 8, uh, in the late 1730s, in England, a revival began to move. And there was a man there, he was an Anglican, uh, going through Oxford to become a preacher, and his name was George Whitfield. And George Whitfield is probably one of the most powerful preachers uh, blessed by God in the history of the entire church. Uh, it is said that at his first sermon when he was 20 or 21 years old, that three people went mad. And what they meant by that is that they were under such deep conviction that they lost control of themselves. And thankfully, he had a bishop in the Anglican church who could say about that, I wish I had a hundred preachers who could drive people mad like George Whitfield. That he, he supported him. And Whitfield, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, went out into, into the Moorfields, into public places, and he preached in the open air. And there's a very, very well-documented biography that I recommend to all of you. It's two volumes, and it's by Arnold Dallimore. Make sure you write that down. Arnold Dallimore. Don't get the um, Reader's Digest version. Get the big, fat, two-volume version. So it's very well-researched, and Whitfield was preaching up to, to, up to 30,000 people in the open air were gathering to hear him. This is what was happening. But he didn't want to be part of a schism with the Anglican church. He didn't want people to gather around himself. And so that was part of the reason and also gospel opportunities that he decided to come to America in the 1740s. He came by boat to preach the gospel here. And I would just tell you as a side note, because not many people know about George Whitfield, he probably did more in that time of revival in his preaching to shape American history than anybody else. If you think about the history of that, and I'll just let you read the biography. Well, what he did, because all these English people were gathering to hear him, he went and found John Wesley, who was his buddy at the Oxford, at the Holy Club at Oxford. And John Wesley was still really confused and tied up. Everybody thinks that he got clear about the gospel at Aldersgate Street. I don't really believe that. He had a lot of ups and downs. Anyway, at this point, 
Uh, Wesley was kind of hiding. He was afraid to preach. And basically, Whitfield went and said, you know, God is calling you. You have to go out here and take over these people. Now, Wesley went out there, began to preach, and he started a schism. It's just the truth. No offense to you Methodists who are coming out of a Wesleyan background. He preached things that were diametrically opposed to Whitfield's and Anglican doctrine. And so it, it created a big mess. So eventually when Whitfield went back, people were urging him to take the lead in a new denomination. We're going to break from the Anglicans and we're going to break from the Wesleys. And actually Calvinistic Welch Presbyterianism came out of that. But it wasn't because of Whitfield. Whitfield said, I'm not letting anybody gather under my name. I'm a servant of the revival. I want Christ to be known. And anyone who opens a pulpit to me from that pulpit, I will preach. And he even said that people criticized him, particularly some of the Anglican hierarchy criticized him. And there's a famous quote, it's in that biography somewhere, where, where he said, if Muhammad, meaning uh, Islam, if, if Muhammad would open his pulpit to me from there, I would preach Christ. That just gives me, it doesn't give you a fire. It's just got to give you a fire. Somebody, yeah, that, that quote is a quote. Whitfield, to me, is the exemplar of the attitude that Paul had here. My highest goal is not to build a tribe around myself, but to have people know and follow Jesus Christ. And so as we really think about that today and applying this, will you and I be careful not to get hung up on personalities, not to become fanboys necessarily of any particular person? And you know, we want to honor people who teach and preach and who are gifted at that and who bless the church, but we always want to be able to say that person is a gift from Christ. My allegiance is not to them. My allegiance is to the Christ who sent them. These are people who just water and who build on the foundation that has been laid. So let's just say, you know, um, the late Tim Keller, godly guy, saw lots of effective ministry. Uh, the late R.C. Sproul, um, the living Sinclair Ferguson, um, you, pick, you pick your favorite people and just be able to say to yourself, Lord, thank you for this person, their training, their gifts, their effectiveness, but my allegiance is not to this party, but to the risen Christ. And so as you think about that, it, it brings up a corollary application to me for following Christ, and that is, are you able to rejoice in the kingdom gospel advance of people who aren't in your tribe? This is a really important question for us, for me. And I, I think if I've heard it once, I've heard it 7,000 times. Yeah, those people over there are seeing professions of faith and growth like wildfire because they watered it all down. They're not like us, deep theological people. And you may not have ever heard anything that anybody said, and that may be true in some cases, 
But that shouldn't be our first response, should it? We should rejoice when the kingdom goes forward because we follow Christ and not a particular party. So what's the second thing that we want to say? The first, in terms of going back to the basics or sticking with the basics, is follow Christ. And the second thing that we want to say is this text tells us to be strong in love. And that's my summary of verses 13 and 14. He says, be watchful. This is a New Testament theme that you should be aware of and kind of take to heart. Uh, To watch and pray. This is like a, a, a sentinel position outside of a camp. You know, if, if your company is in camp somewhere and there's enemies all about you, you put sentinels out there to watch. And if they fall asleep, it could be a catastrophe for everybody. So all through the Gospels and everywhere, watch and pray, watch and pray. And this is what Jesus says to Peter when he knows that Satan is asked to sift him like wheat. He said, Watch and pray, stay awake and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. So so part of this watchfulness is watchfulness in a spiritual realm to recognize that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness that are unseen. And part of it is to watch our doctrine in life. And, And again, we, I think in our circles, we tend to flop towards doctrine really quickly and don't think so much about love and relationships and life. And I was very thankful for one of the commentators who uh, commented in the book of 1 Corinthians, I don't think I would have picked this up forever, that all the issues that he's addressed up to chapter 15 were ethical issues of love and relationship within the body, divisions with one another, sexual immorality, Uh, oppressing people in the court system, Um, going to idol temples while your your brothers are grieved about that. It all had to do with how are you loving one another? And then lastly, in 15, he comes down a more purely doctrinal point, which was the resurrection of the dead, an important point, of course. But when we say that we want to watch, we want to watch not only what we assent to, but how we either love or don't love one another. The second thing he says here is stand firm. And I I don't stand firm in the faith. And I don't have a lot to add to that. But I would think that because of the proximity of chapter 15 to 16, the whole issue of them denying the resurrection of the dead has to be prominent in our thinking. And Paul said, this is what I receive. What I received from the Lord, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. This is this gospel message. And this is the, the, the firm foundation of faith that God has laid in Scripture and in the work of Christ that they need to be standing firm on. Don't let anyone budge you from these, the central issue of the atonement. And then he says... Uh, Act like men is how the ESV translated it. The NIV said, be courageous. And we don't have to get into all modern uh, gender kinds of things. If you look at the Hebrew of the Old Testament, the word for simply be courageous gets translated in the Greek version 
of the Old Testament as a word that has male connotations. Androzomai, you can hear andros in that, in that root, uh, where we get androgens and, and other things from. And it simply means be courageous, take courage. And so he's saying to them, think about the courage that these people had to have and the strength that they had to have to work out all the things that were before them. And we could maybe just take this to heart. We've had a congregational meeting here today and we have, we have things that we need to work through and work out as a congregation. I mean, this is a direct uh, exhortation uh, to, to be courageous, to stand firm, and to be strong. And so those of you, by the way, who want to do the lexical work on uh, Andridzomai, the act like men, and see how you would translate it, it's in Joshua 1.6 and Psalm 31. And 27. Now, I want to illustrate what this might look like by taking Paul himself as an illustration. You'll remember that in 1 Corinthians, uh, there was uh, sexual immorality that went on uh, that was shocking, and they had not addressed it. So there was obvious public sexual immorality in the congregation, and they were just sort of winking or turning a blind eye to it. Uh, there was also this rebellion that was going on against Paul. And we don't know exactly who those people are. He says, uh, I'm going to find out all these people who are talking, uh, whether they're just talk in chapter four or whether they have power, whether they have authority. And, you know, if you read Acts, Paul had apostolic authority that was difficult for some people, <laughs> like going blind and things like that. He, he really was an apostle. So he goes in 2 Corinthians, and you have to join these two things together, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he's now reflecting on what he had said to them. You have to deal with the sexual immorality or the rebellion. Not sure he doesn't say. And he says, listen, the censure, the discipline that you've placed on the person in question is sufficient. And you don't want to run that person into the ground. If they've done anything to offend me, I forgive them. And I want you to offend and I, mean, I want you to accept that offender and restore him as well. And at the very end of that exhortation, what Paul says, he says, I want you to do this because we're not ignorant of the devil's schemes. We're not ignorant of the devil's schemes. Do you see how this, it puts this all together? Hey, you guys be strong. Stand firm, take courage, deal with the sin in your midst. But be watchful because Satan can outwit you on both sides of the coin, either to get you to wink at open sin or to get you to overcompensate and drive out someone who's turned back to Christ and repented. Restore that person now gently. And you see how that can work either way. And it can work that way for us and among us. And so we look at this and we say, where are you and I languishing in watching and standing firm in the faith and being courageous and being strong? Where particularly is where you said, Lord, this is too much for me. I can't really deal with this anymore. That God's calling you to hang on, to be faithful, to be strong.
Now, the key thing about this, and this is so, so key, and we, I would like to ask you to memorize this. God gives what he commands. For those who have the Holy Spirit, for those who are in Christ, whatever the Lord says, do this, he turns around and gives you the power in weakness to do that. And I would just speak specifically to the men here, and probably this is my own like counseling session or whatever that when I say this, maybe you weren't raised like I was raised, but a lot of men in the South were raised with, hey boy, you better buck up. You think you're tired? You haven't seen tired yet. And I bet there are people in this room that have been out running sprints in August and doing those kinds of things where you knew that you were about to go down under heat exhaustion and nobody cared. Well, listen, Jesus is not your football coach. So the way that you get strong, the way that you take courage is by coming to Christ in honesty and saying, I don't have it. In fact, not only do I not have it, you might even have to say, I don't even want it. Jesus, I need help. And the scripture says that his yoke is easy, his burden is light, that he's gentle and humble in heart, and with watching, standing firm, being strong, taking courage, he comes to you with gentleness, by the Holy Spirit and says, I will give you what I command. Now, there's a key point to this. And in the discipling world where I grew up, we call it the feel of faith. The feel of faith remains weakness, right? You want to go and you want to collapse in prayer and say, Lord, I don't have the strength, the courage, the wherewithal, the desire to do this. And you want to stand up and then go out like Samson with a jawbone and, you know, knock everything around as the strongest person in the world. But what you do is you get up off your knees and say, Lord, I will take this next step with you. I'll take the next step with you. And you find, as you look back in the rearview mirror, that he strengthened you, that he gave you courage, that he gave you endurance. And that's how this works. And he says that, that Paul is very clear. He says, let everything that you do be done in love. And so one of the questions as we pursue Christ, as we seek to stand firm in doctrine and life, as we seek to watch against unseen enemies and all that, when we interact with one another, and, and again, this is really important, it's very convicting to me, are the, 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 the people that you're interacting with you, are they receiving your concerns as love. It's the responsibility of the communicator to understand the person who's hearing so that you can, can communicate your concerns, your concerns for the kingdom, you're standing firm, you're being courageous in a way that communicates love to them. That you're not like a bull in the china shop. I'm doing everything Paul said. And there's a pile of bodies behind me. 
you know, we all have to sort of stand and let that do its work on us. Do you know where that could really maybe start most dramatically uh, if you're married in your household? And this is, this is a, a tip for if you have teenagers. Don't let any unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only that which is good for building others up according to their need. Listen, I'm the worst at this. I got the answer for you before you even opened your mouth. I saw it coming from a mile away. I decided it was all finished. And then you said something, and it didn't matter what you said because I had already decided. Um, stand firm, but do so in love. And then the last thing that we want to uh, talk about here is that we want to stick to the basic of following those who serve. Now, we're not going to cover verses 19 through the end. We're, we're going to, uh, this is the last sermon in the series, but we're just going to stop for this sermon in 15 through 18. Paul has a broken sentence here in the ESV. He says, I urge you, brothers, and then he pauses. And then he gives this commendation to the household of Stephanus. They were the first converts in southern Greece, in that lower part of, of modern Greece, he and his household. And what did they do? They devoted themselves to the service of the saints. And then his exhortation goes on. I urge you, brothers, be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. And then he commends not only Stephanus, but Fortunatus and Achaeus, because they have made up for the absence of the Corinthians coming to him in Ephesus, long journey across the sea or overland through Macedonia, all the way over to Ephesus, and they supplied his needs. And then at the very end, he says, give recognition to such people. Be subject, and I'm calling that follow, people like this. Well, I was reading this week, there is a church out in Idaho that we have tried to learn some things from over the course of time. And the, one of the leaders has written about an interaction that he had. Uh, this is a, a church that grew from nothing to 12,000 and planted like 300 churches or something. There was a big gospel explosion uh, among them. And um, a fellow came to one of the leaders and said, uh, dropped names of the seminary that he went to and the doctoral degree that he had and said that he had taught in various kinds of churches and that he wanted to be a teacher in this very large church. I think the leader was really smart and he said, um, you know, that's all nice. Would you be willing to go through our new members class and just submit yourself to that? And then will you uh, go through the small group leaders uh, training so that you understand our, our small group structure and be part of a small group for a while uh, because uh, this is how we grow leaders and acknowledge people. And, and the fella responded to him and said, you know, I think small groups are a place where people can develop unsound doctrine. And, and he had some criticisms of their worship style and various things like that. And eventually uh, they parted company and he moved on to uh, a smaller venue where he could teach. And if it was, came to light that he probably bounced from church to church to church, uh, being divisive. 
And the point of that is I think that story is a lot like what happened in Corinth. If you look at the book of 1 Corinthians all the way across, he keeps talking about the pneumatikos, which is the Greek word for the spiritual people. So there's a group of people. Hey, we're wise. We've got some Greek philosophy. Yeah, we believed in Jesus. We can speak in tongues. And we go eat at the idol temple because we're really enlightened. You can see that picture emerging from 1 Corinthians. We're, we're, we're spiritual. We're leaders. And Paul is really turning the tables on that whole thing here. And he's saying, if you want to emulate somebody, if you want to be subject to somebody, if you want to follow somebody, be like Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaeus. They're actually devoted to the people that God has called out from the world to be in his body. And you can see how they served. They're not mere talkers. They're doers of the word. And so I, don't, I spent some time trying to decide if maybe Stephanus was a deacon because the word for servant in Greek is the same as the word for deacon. But I don't think Stephanus was an officer. It doesn't say anywhere that he was an elder or a deacon. I mean, it's an argument from silence. I don't know if he was or wasn't. But Paul's saying, be subject to such as these. And that really is a, a statement about authority within the church for everybody. Now, God has ordained elders and deacons. We have official offices. I'm not overturning anything like that. But you can lead simply by doing. You can lead. And Paul's saying, follow people who love other people. Now, I don't know about you, but this is really convicting to me because I can see myself, my primary gift is preaching and teaching. We don't want to really denigrate anybody's gifts. And other people's gifts are in mercy. It's a lot easier. They don't want to talk or anything. They want to be behind the scenes serving. But I think this text puts the heat on people like myself to say, are you in relationships with people where you're actively serving and loving and in the mess with other people? Those are the people that we want to recognize and honor. Those are the people like Stephanus and Fortunatus. So how do we do that? Well, again, I would just point you back to the gospel all over again. Paul says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. This is, I've skipped over to Galatians now. Um, the only thing that counts, not circumcision, uncircumcision, the only thing that counts is faith receiving and resting on Christ having the joy of being an adopted son or daughter by the Holy Spirit, spilling over then and empowering your love to other people. That's all that counts. Isn't that what 1 Corinthians 13 says? See, 1 Corinthians 13 does exactly what this leader said. 1 Corinthians 13 said, I don't care how much knowledge you have if you don't have love. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Well, I'm getting, I, this wasn't in my script. I'm getting on a roll here. Like we could quote all the way through the book of 1 Corinthians on these lines. So what is the Lord laying on your heart? How are you being challenged yourself about being in relationships with other people in the body of Christ where you can say, I'm actively serving, I'm actively loving other people? Now, I know there's all kinds of different circumstances in life. Everybody's in different seasons. But I think this paragraph really necessitates that. Well, if that's you, we want to follow you. 
We want to follow your lead as you follow Christ. So let's summarize. Uh, This has been a great journey through 1 Corinthians. I've really been blessed by it. And uh, what we see today and even last week is sticking to the basics, uh, habits of a messy church, uh, really saying the same thing. Follow Christ, not personalities. Uh, Be strong, but do so in love. And then finally here, what we have is follow those who serve. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for this time to look at your word. And we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we might come to you as weak people and find that you empower us to love in ways that we hadn't imagined, that you would empower us to take courage and stand firm in ways that we hadn't imagined. And we want to ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.